Well, it's great to be back with you. And uh, I'm going to speak about this amazing story uh, this morning of Jesus walking on water towards his disciples. And uh, he actually calms the storm again as he does that. And so that's really what I, what, what I want to have a look at with you this morning in Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 45 to verse 60, uh, sorry, 56. And um, we're going to look at that portion together. So I'm just going to read together now. It says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when he, they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they had all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves as their hearts were hardened. Well, this really is a remarkable story, isn't it? And it, and it links back to the last miracle that um, Helen preached on last week with the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and the first thing that we see here in verse 45 at the, end of the uh, at the beginning of the story is that Jesus sends his disciples away um, uh, while he's dismissing the crowd. And, and Mark doesn't really tell us why, but if we reference uh, across to John's account of this uh, story, he gives us the probable reason. Um, straight after the feeding of the 5,000, we read in John 6, 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And so here we see, I mean, that's really the last thing that Jesus wanted. Remember uh, that when he had been tested in the desert by the devil, he had decisively rejected the temptation of power as the way to achieve God's plan for his life. And he had rejected it then. And so he, he didn't want his disciples now to get caught up in some kind of nationalistic attempt to make him king. And Galilee had historically been a place where uh, revolutions against the Romans had been birthed. And so Jesus didn't want his disciples to become distracted by that or anything like that again. And so he calms the crowd and he sends his disciples away at the same time. And then we see in verse 46 that when he's alone, he goes up onto the mountainside to pray. And uh, we've already seen in the first six chapters of this uh, Gospel of Mark uh, how Mark describes how quickly opposition had begun to rise against Jesus. And there were a number of sources. There was firstly the Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, and then there was also opposition from uh, Herod Antipas, who was threatened and suspicious and also, in addition to that, there were Jewish nationalists that wanted to make Jesus the leader of a revolution for the Jewish nation uh, against the Romans. And obviously, he didn't want to do that. It was not his will to do that. And so, it's no wonder that um, with all these pressures bearing down on him, uh, Jesus, Jesus goes uh, up onto the mountainside and he wants to be alone to pray. Um, and we also know from John's account that it must have been around mid-April that this all happened because that was the time of the Passover. And uh, the Passover was deliberately fixed uh, at the full moon and it ran from 
6 p.m. in the evening to 6 a.m. the following day, and that was the, the Jewish night. And the night was divided into four different watches. Uh, the first from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m., the second from 9 p.m. till midnight, and then the third between midnight and 3 a.m., and the fourth between 3 and 6 in the morning. And so we read in the portion uh, that it must have been about 3 o'clock in the morning, the, that's the fourth watch of the night, that Jesus looked out from the mountainside across the lake. And we know that uh, where Jesus must have been, that the lake at that point is only about four miles across. And so he must have been able to see across the whole of the lake by the light of the full moon. And he must have been able to see his disciples struggling in their boat as the wind gets up again and begins to blow strongly. And immediately that Jesus sees that his friends are in trouble, he sets aside all those things he's been praying about, his worries, his troubles, um, and he acts quickly and acts decisively. And he forgets himself and he goes to help his friends. And I think that shows right at the beginning of the story the, the very heart of Jesus, that what motivated him most was the needs of people. And now the friends, his close friends, needed him. And so he leaves everything that concerns him and he goes to help them. And in doing that, he's also trusting his father to enable him to get to the other side because he walks on water to reach them. And we read that in verse uh, 48. And it's incredible just to contemplate um, and think about what that must have been like for the disciples um, that they see this apparition, they think it's a ghost, walking towards them on the surface of the water. Um, and it's interesting to me, there's three little things that I, fi I find fascinating in this story. Um, first of all, Jesus seems to act like he hasn't seen them. Uh, the scripture says that it's like he's about to pass them by. So he's kind of putting himself in a position where it's like he's just going to casually walk past them on the water. Uh, and it seems to me that he does want to help them, but most of all, he wants to show them what he can do by his father's power. He's really demonstrating again that he's all powerful and that he wants them to see that. And secondly, it amazes me at that first they don't seem to recognize him. They've been, they've been living with him. They've, they've spent all this time with him. They've seen him do all these amazing miracles. He's just fed the 5,000. And they think it's a ghost and they cry out in terror. Uh, we read that in verse 49 and 50. But in spite of that, in spite of them not recognizing him, not recognizing him Jesus encourages them to take heart. He says, don't fear. He gets into the boat. And you notice again, as soon as he gets into the boat, the wind and the waves die down should remind you of the story that we looked at a short while ago where Jesus calms the storm and does exactly the same thing. He wakes up in the middle of the storm and he immediately speaks and the storm becomes calm. And here again, Jesus gets into their boat and as soon as he gets into their boat, the wind and the waves dial down. And when Jesus is with them and beside them, nothing else seems to matter and the storm is calmed and they find peace once again. And thirdly, uh, we're told by, uh, in verse 51 that they are utterly astounded. And then Jesus turns around and says, well, you shouldn't be. He kind of rebukes them in verse 52 in a very kind way. But he's saying, well, why are you so, why are you so astounded? Why are you so surprised by this? And Mark actually connects that back to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Mark is saying to us that if, the, if they'd really understood the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they would have known that Jesus was God's king who was able to do anything. And it's because they were still slow to grasp who Jesus was and slow to understand and believe in him uh, that, he was, that, that they struggled to, to even recognize him walking towards them 
on water. And I was just thinking about that this week, and I just want to say, you know, before we get too hard on the disciples, let's reflect on our own lives a little bit. Uh, and uh, how many times has Jesus not calmed a storm for us in our lives? Uh, how many times has he not perhaps miraculously provided for us? And how often, when we are facing another difficult situation, do we not tend towards doubt and not recognize that Jesus has already come to us, He's already walked to us on the storm of our lives. And we don't really recognize that it's him until he calls out in an obvious way. And the storm, the, the water calms and he gets into our boat. And then we, the penny drops and we say, oh, Jesus, it is you. I recognize that it is you. And uh, we can be exactly like the disciples were. And I was just reading this week that uh, Augustine he, he realized that tendency as well uh, many, many years ago. And when he was writing about this story, he said this. He said, Jesus came treading the waves, and so he put all the swelling tumult of life under his feet. Christian, why are you so afraid? And um, you see, there's a simple truth here that's been proved over and over again, countless times in the lives of many generations of men and women, that have walked by faith in Jesus. And it's simply this, that wherever Jesus is, the storm becomes calm, the rushing water subsides, and it becomes peaceful again. And so where Jesus comes and where Jesus is, what we think cannot be done, what we think is unbearable, uh, it gets done. And what seems unbearable becomes bearable. And even when we feel that we passed our breaking point, we do not break because Jesus is with us. And so I want to encourage you that, that really would, you'll be rooted in that truth at this difficult time in our nation and in the, in the world, really, uh, as we face this, uh, this pandemic and how we continue to try and, and handle it together. When Jesus is with you in your life, he quiets the storm, he calms the water, he does what you think can't be done, and he bears you up even when you feel like you're about to break. And I want to encourage you, when Jesus gets into your boat, everything changes. And when you see Jesus and you walk with Jesus, you overcome the storm with him as well. And so Jesus is in, with us in the storm and, and we're going to overcome it together with him as we move forward. And I really trust that you would re relax into that truth this week and know that it's true. Jesus is with us in the storm and this storm and we're going to overcome it together with him. And then we see the story move quite quickly to a place that we are already familiar with. Remember Gadaris? Remember the casting out of the demons into the pigs that we looked at a couple of weeks ago? Well, this story moves on now and it says, um, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Wow, this is, a, again, just such an incredible encouragement and incredible portion for us. And so Jesus comes back to the land of Gadares or Gennesaret. Remember, we looked at the, 
the reasons why it's called that uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he's immediately surrounded by people who recognize him. And uh, I'm convinced that that is so because the demonized man who had been set free by Jesus uh, had gone around the whole region telling people of what Jesus had done to him and done for him. And he'd gone told in everyone. And so now people recognized and said, oh, this is Jesus. This is the person that helped that man. And uh, so they immediately go and they get as many of the sick as they can. And they bring the sick to Jesus so he can heal them. And it seems that everybody wanted something from Jesus. And so they brought everyone that had a need. And they brought these people to Jesus so that he could heal them. I've often wondered how Jesus must have felt at times like that. It seems that there was hardly anyone in the crowds that came to him that didn't want something from him. And largely, people came to Jesus for what they could get from him. Uh, what a difference it might have made if there had even been a few in the crowd who came to give and not just to get. But I have to say, in, an, in a way, it is most natural that we come to Jesus to get something from him because there are so many things that he alone can give us. Uh, the scripture says he alone is the way, the truth, the life. Uh, he alone is the good shepherd. He alone has the words of life. He alone is the gate through which all must enter. So we do have to come to Jesus in terms of what we can get from him because there's some things that only he alone can give us. But there's also something not quite right in always taking without giving anything back. And that so often characterizes us and our human nature. So here, here are some simple examples that I've been thinking about this week. Um, for example, um, we can sometimes view our homes as places where we just get things. So we presume that our home is our place for our own comfort, our own convenience, where we eat and sleep and get things done for us. It's the place that we are loved and accepted. And yet we can sometimes lose sight of the fact that our home is also a place where we contribute, where we give love away, where we give our lives back into the family, and we don't just always be on the receiving end all the time. Sometimes we can even make use of our friends. Um, that's the th second thing I was thinking about. And um, I have to confess, as a student, I was guilty of this. I would often uh, drop by at mealtimes to my friends and say hello to my mates and end up staying for supper. <laughs> and fortunately, my friends were gracious and kind, and they took pity on me, and they fed me well while I was a student. Uh, but of course, the truth is that true friendship is that which gives itself away to others and doesn't really expect to receive anything back in return. Friendship really is love in action. And sometimes we can lose sight of that when we are so concerned with our own needs. And then thirdly, there's sometimes even people that use the church. And um, this is especially true in our Western culture, in our consumerist culture. Uh, the church is expected to baptize people when required to, to marry children when asked to, uh, to bury the dead when they are needed to be buried. But apart from that, the church is not, is not seen to be needed except when it's required to perform some service. And uh, there's an unconscious attitude that the church exists to serve us, but that we have no corresponding duty towards the beautiful bride of the Lord Jesus. And I want to encourage you, let that not be true of us as a church. Let us love and honor God's bride, the church of Jesus, 
let's give ourselves in love, in worship, and in service to make her even more beautiful than she already is. And then fourthly, there can even be some who really make use of God or try to make use of God. And what I mean by this is very simple. Um, God is not remembered unless he's needed. Prayers are simply requests and even sometimes demands made of him. It's like God is expected to meet every request as soon as it's asked, to appear whenever he is summoned, and to turn up immediately and do whatever is asked or needed. And uh, I guess if we're honest with ourselves, we can all tend to be like this from time to time, especially when we're under pressure or stress. Uh, we expect God to come immediately and sort out our problems. Uh, and that's why it must please the heart of God so much when more often than not we come to him to offer our love, to offer our service, to offer our devotion. When we come to him out of love for who he is rather than what he just does for us. I'm sure that's what pleases him more than anything. People giving themselves in love and devotion to him. But here's the incredible thing that I've find as I reflect on the story, Jesus must have known all of those motives when people's hearts in the crowd when they came to him, just as he knows sometimes those motives are in our hearts when we come to him now. And the most amazing thing is, it says in the last verse, wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick at the marketplace and they implored him that they may touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. You see, there again is the heart, of the heart of Jesus. The crowds came, many came to get what they could from Jesus, and uh, many came with mixed motives, just as we do. And yet, knowing that, Jesus healed all who came to him. And so it is with us. When we come to him, even with mixed motives, Jesus is still faithful to us. He is the good shepherd who cares for us, he lays down his life for us, that we might have his life, his healing, his purpose, his destiny, and he wants to move us forward into his plan for our lives. Whenever we come, he reaches out and he touches us and he heals. I want to conclude by just encouraging you and saying, why don't you come to him again? Maybe you're listening to this and you've never ever understood your need to come to Christ, your need to ask for his help, your need to say, Lord, take control of my life. I want to encourage you this morning that he wants to take you into your future and your calling and your destiny. He, he is the good shepherd who cares for you, who loves you and wants the best for you. And whatever your motives in coming to him, whether they're mixed or, or not, he wants to heal your life. And the promise is that whoever comes to him, even if we just touch the fringe of his garment, we can be made whole, we can be made well. And so I would encourage you to come to him. Come to him this morning and let your life be transformed by him as he moves in your life by his spirit.